This is Greg Chastain, host of the Cardinal Cafe. Thank you for joining us on this first episode of a two-part series with Grammy Award-winning and Tony-nominated actor Sean Allen Krill from Jagged Little Pill. In this episode, Sean opens up about the loss of his partner Guy Adkins to cancer, and he talks a little bit about his life in Chicago and his roots of Broadway. I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Cardinal Cafe. My name is Greg Chastain, and I'm the president of Voices of Hope, along with my co-star, cohort, whatever you want to call him, Ed Siegel, the vice president of Voices of Hope. Hey, Ed. Hey, Greg. How are you? Good. How was your week? It was good. Getting excited. The weather's getting better. A lot more activity is happening, so it feels like some sense of normalcy is returning to our lives. So Exactly. I'm actually getting my second shot this weekend, so I'm so excited to be yeah. sick on Monday and then free after that. Yes, I got <laughs> so. my second on Tuesday, so. Good. We'll be, uh, we'll be jab buddies, as they say in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a very exciting show today. We have a, uh, a wonderful person who's uh, become a family member of Voices of Hope across the uh, network here. He is a Grammy Award winner, Tony-nominated, the star of Jagged Little Pill, Mr. Sean Allen Krill. Hey, Sean. Hi, thanks for having me, you guys. It's oh. nice to actually see your faces. Anybody listening doesn't know that I'm seeing your faces, but I, we're we're zooming. Yes, it's the it's the new uh, podcast way to do things. Um, right. How exciting to be have those titles now. It sounds uh, absolutely insane when you say it that way. It also sounded really nice too. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just hard work really gets you somewhere, Sean. <laughs> yeah, Sean, you're a Chicago guy, right? I am. Did you grow up there or? I didn't grow up in Chicago, but I, I always kind of say that I grew up as an actor in Chicago because I moved there right after college. I opened the Chicago company of Forever Plaid there at the Royal George <laughs> Theater and stayed for 15 something years. I love Chicago. Love it. It's a great city. I was a kid when we lived in uh, the north side of Chicago and then we moved to Indiana when I was 18, we used to drive back up to Rush Street when Rush Street was Rush Street. Right. And uh, hit the bars because it was 18 back then. I love Chicago. Grew up there um, <laughs> myself. Forever Plaid. I had a couple of friends that did it on tour. David Benoit and Jeff Bannon. Oh, yeah. I know those names. I don't know them well, but I know their names for sure. I did dinner theater with them when they were still at the Boston Conservatory of Music. Wow. The small world. It's weird how the theater just interconnects and we kind of all end up knowing somebody that knows somebody and then the connections are made. Um, but yeah, I, I love Chicago. So me too. Great theater city. My first show was at the Erie crown theater that I went to see. I saw um, Carol Channing and hello Dolly at the oh Erie crown. God. Wow. wow. <laughs> oh, that's dating you. <laughs> yeah, Although she did I, it a lot. She did it a, many, many times. Didn't she? Yeah, it was phenomenal. And like I said, I can't talk enough about Chicago, but enough about Chicago. Let's talk about some other stuff. <laughs> Let's talk about Sean. I mean, that's why he's here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, we should let Sean talk about what he'd like to talk about. <laughs> Back in your Chicago days, Forever Plaid, you started out with, what else did you do in Chicago? Oh my goodness. You mean theater-wise? Yeah. I did Forever Plaid for two years there. Wow. So I wasn't really a part of the Chicago sort of theater pool per se for a long time because I was, I moved there and immediately went into a long running show that was downtown, downtown-ish anyway. And um, so it wasn't until 1996 when I left the show that I, I started kind of working in the Chicago theater circles 
over my time there in Chicago, I, 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 I worked at Drury Lane Evergreen Park when it was still there. Uh, I worked at Drury Lane Oakbrook, Marriott, Steppenwolf. Wow. I did shows downtown at the Chicago, the Ford Theater, the Cadillac. The, I mean, it, I, I was all over the place. You know, I was working anywhere they'd take me. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> we have a lot of people that listen to us that uh, do a lot of the same stuff in Boston. They've been here for a long time by doing that sort of thing. So it's great to see and hear about people who put in their time and then make the leap to New York. But I know during the time in Chicago, one of the reasons um, you and I kind of chatted before and have kind of fallen into uh, becoming this sort of friendship here is um, your time with Guy. And That's I'd right. I you to tell the people about Guy and how um, your journey with Guy and his cancer kind of uh, shaped your career and your life from there. Yeah, that was actually right around the same time. It was in 1997 that I met Guy, and he was an actor, very, very well-known, very... Um, successful and brilliant performer. You know, he was very, very close with Tina Landau, the director Tina Landau. He was one of those rare individuals that was able to sort of straddle both the musical theater world and the straight theater world. And, and so he worked in all of the musical theater houses in Chicago. And he also, you know, was playing Hamlet at the court theater doing, you know, Stoppard down at the Goodman, you know, I mean, he was all over the place and it was, it was, it was wonderful. And I was kind of with them as all of that unfolded. We were together for 13 years and we had both just done national tours, uh, still based in Chicago. I had done Mamma Mia for two years and he did the Sweet Charity Tour with Molly Ringwald. Wow. <laughs> I'm just going to drop that name right in there. <laughs> we both had amazing time uh, and amazing times and after that, we just decided we were going to go to New York. It wasn't necessarily about wanting to leave Chicago by any means. It was just, it's been 15 years for both of us at this point. Why don't we go and see what New York is like? And so we did, and things were going really well. I was doing Mamma Mia on Broadway, and he was kind of rocking the um, TV and film world. And then he was diagnosed, started feeling sick in early uh, 2009, right after we had moved uh, in the fall of 2008. He was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer in March of 2009. Obviously, unfortunately, it was far too late to really do anything for him at that point. It had metastasized pretty horribly all over his body. And especially the thing that really was detrimental was that it had metastasized to his liver. That was what was really doing the damage and causing a lot of the pain and discomfort that ultimately was the reason that we went to the doctor and found out that it was even there. Because he was young. He was only, I think he was 39 at the time that he was diagnosed. Ugh. He was amazing and he was positive and just one of the most angelic kind of brilliant human beings I've ever seen uh, throughout all of it. Wrote a book while he was ill and sort of chron you know chronicled his journey with cancer. It's called Notes from a Candyman. It started out as notes on Facebook back when Facebook had this thing right. that you could do that were just basically just like blog entries. Ultimately, toward the end of his life, we compiled them all and, and made a book out of it. And, and he was able to actually see it as a book, like just oh, that's great. days before he died. Just loved it. And actually, this is a strange twist in the story, but my current husband, Harry, who was also an actor and was a dear friend of ours at the time, was the one that made it a book. He was the one that compiled all the notes and and made it into a book. So it was, a, it was just about the loveliest gift, I think. What a great testament. 
right? It was amazing. So yeah, he was he was truly incredible the way he handled it, and he sort of was a beacon in the night for me in dealing with it in my own way that I had to deal with the sort of obviously very different struggles that we both had, even though we were going through it together. My struggle was about learning to face that I might have to live without him. And and we talked, I was very fortunate enough that I was able to talk to him about that and ask him questions. And, you know, what would you do if you were me in this situation? And mm-hmm. he was very, very adamant about the fact that I had the harder job. He's like, I know I'm dying of cancer. I know, <laughs> but you're the one that's going to have to go on living after I'm gone. And I know how hard that would be for me. Yeah. And you know what, in retrospect, I might, I might actually give him that. I might actually give him that, it, you know, it is, it is a very, very difficult thing that we have to do as human beings. Yeah. The, to, the grief doesn't go away. No, it doesn't. I don't care how far away from it you are. The grief never goes away. No, it is. It is just the kind of thing you have to learn to pick up and carry with you. And it, it's fundamental. And that's the way I've tried to choose to look at it is it is formative. It has made me who I am today. My time with Guy and my time with Guy's illness, even and his death has made me who I am right now. And I don't know that I would have been able to do and be here and do the things that I've done if it hadn't been for that journey that I took with him. And of course I miss him and I, I, you know, would, would love to have him back and all those things, but, um, yeah, you know, we know that's not possible. And so it's all about, it's all about how do you take that and make it a part of your life and make your life then proceed in a, in a better way. One of the things that really struck me about one of the interviews I was reading is that because of that journey um, that you and Guy were on, that it gave you a healthier perspective when it came to auditioning, right? I mean, yes. we, we always know no matter what level of theater you're, you participate in, we always go into an audition and you have a role, you want a role, you just know you're right for the role, but you don't get cast. And some people deal with it. Okay, I didn't get cast. There's, there's always another show. Other people will lament over it for a week. They think it's the end of the world and they just can't deal with it. But your perspective in going hmm. into an audition was, hey, listen, nobody's dying here. You know, right. I don't have control over the casting committee. I don't have control over the artistic vision. If I'm right for the role and I'm talented enough, great. I'll be considered if I'm not in that picture. Oh, well. <laughs> right. It's not life and death. Right. It matters to me a lot, but there's nothing like losing someone that you love that much to sort of thrust everything into a very, very sort of clear perspective. Showbiz is is awesome. And, you know, uh, I would not say that everything about it is appealing, but <laughs> but it is really awesome. But it isn't everything. You have to be very careful to not let that define you, because what right. what I want to define me is is my relationships and my love, you know, the, the, the people that I love in my life. So yeah, that's, yeah, awesome. that's, that is yeah. so much more important, but you know, there, I'm not going to lie. There are still those moments when I, you know, it always is terrible. This is actually a guy quote. Guy used to say, no matter what, you know, no matter, no matter how you rationalize the reasons for why it didn't happen, it always sucks to not get the job. Yeah. Always. Course. Yep. <laughs> there's always that little feeling of like that knife twisting when it happens. You're like, mm-hmm. Oh man, I really wanted that one. Uh, and it yeah. still happens to me. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not that sort of enlightened. I wish, but I'm not. And, you know, <laughs> but I, but I do still have the perspective obviously in my, you know, sort of deep inside me. And I go, wait a minute, this is just a, this is just a gig. It's just a job. 
Yeah. The stakes are higher for you though than for us. You know, we're we're playing in the community theater world. We're not getting paid for it. I mean, this is your livelihood. So every time you you go on a, a job interview um, and hope to get the job, you know you're going to get paid for it if you do get the job. So so there is that piece of it that that is nice. I mean, it, you know, it, it, but it, it, I don't know. I I think ultimately, you know, we're all artists and we're all driven by this artistic desire to share what we do. Mm-hmm. Yes, the pay is nice, but I think it's unfortunately that love for the art <laughs> that makes it hurt equally, no matter yeah. if you're getting paid or not. You know, <laughs> just ask Greg about not getting cast in a lead role. Uh, you can listen to episode two about that. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's funny you talked about how Guy said it's harder on you because uh, my mom actually passed in 2009. From her cancer. Thank you. And uh, the funniest thing toward the end of her life was her arguing with me and my stepfather that we're going to have no idea how to run the house. We won't know how to pay the bills. So she left this litany of things that we have to do, who we pay, how many stamps on the envelope for some of them, because they have to go across state lines, (laughs) old fashioned stuff. But she left a litany of stuff that we had to do to make sure that um, I could take care of my stepfather. And that he could take care of himself. Did Guy give you any of those lists toward the end of his life that that he gave you to uh, make sure you remember to do A, B, and C? No, no. I mean that was that sounds very much like something. You know, ultimately, it sounds like a mother caring for her boys. You know, she was just <laughs> making sure you guys were going to be okay and know how to do everything. Guy pretty much got to a point where I I was doing everything. You know, I was I was I was I was caring for him. I was basically I I sort of demanded to be the nurse, you know, so anything that needed to be done, I would always talk to the doctors and the nurses and say, okay, show me how to do this. I want to do it if I can. So I was, I was playing nurse and I don't know, that helped me, you know, it just helped me to sort of help him physically that way. But I was also taking care of the bills and, and I slowly learned all of his bills and what, when, you know, I mean, I was, I was basically taking care of all of the, all of the busy work for both of us because the chemotherapy was too much. It was too fuzzy. He couldn't focus. And, you know, there were many reasons why it was just necessary for me to kind of take over all that. No, his, his demands were much more sort of existential. I mean, I remember he, this is going to maybe make me tear up. It always does. But he said, um, he said at one point, a couple days before he died, I remember him just looking at me and saying, how you doing? He was in hospice at this point. He had come home from palliative care and we had a hospital bed set up in our front room. And this is, was in, we were back in Chicago at this point. We moved back when he got that sick. And um, he said, how you doing? <laughs> and I said, I, I'm okay. I'm okay. And I just like, you know, like just lost it. And he said, he said, come up, come up here with me. It was the only time I ever did that, you know, because he had so many, he had a port and he had all these tubes and he had this, a drain for his bladder at this point and, you know, all these things sticking out of his poor little body. And, uh, you know, so I, last thing I was going to do is, you know, climb in bed and like, you know, spoon him, you know, um, but we figured out a way I climbed in there and I remember him saying, you know, when I'm gone, you're going to, you're going to miss me. I know you're going to miss me. But I also know that you're going to be relieved that you don't have to do this anymore. You know, there were times it was just really horrible what we what we were having to deal with, you know, just physically, yeah. the, the the things that were happening to, his, as I said, his poor body. 
he said, so I know you're going to be relieved that you don't have to do this anymore. And I want you to promise me that you are not going to feel guilty, that you feel relief. Hmm. Wow. I said, okay. And he said, promise me. <laughs> I said, okay. And he said, and another thing. I said, okay, okay, what? <laughs> he said, um, he said, it's going to get really, really dark. I can't even imagine what you're about to go through. It is going to get really hard. And there are going to be times where you do not want to go on. And I want you to promise me that you will always choose to keep living. And I said, okay. And he said, promise me. <laughs> and I said, okay, I promise. I promise. And you know, I went back to that promise so many times. Yeah. And I still do every now and then. But in the first two, three, four years when it was dark and I was thinking, wow, I just, you know, I never really thought that I was going to kill myself. I just didn't want to be there anymore mm -hmm. with those feelings, you know? Right. I just didn't want to exist anymore because it just hurt so much. And I just hear him saying, promise me, you'll just always choose to live. Okay. So I, so he was a I wise am. man. He was a very wise man. It sounds like an amazing man. And he was lovely and just mischievous and funny as hell. <laughs> yeah. Well, we get to know him through you. So thank you for sharing that. Hear these stories and it pisses me off that Guy, my mom, 2009, if it was now, they might get to live a little longer and not be right. in so much pain because of all the strides that have been made. And right. it just drives me crazy. Like, why, why did it happen then and not now? Because now what guy had and what my mom had, they have ways to help them. And you don't have to go through chemo a lot, which is one of the things that was her biggest problem with uh, just being sick from that. So I know it just that that's what ticks me off at times, just from the timing of it all. Yeah, but, you can you can definitely go down a, a, a rabbit hole of oh, yeah, of why, yeah. you know, and we don't get to know why, I guess no. that's one yeah. of the mysteries of life, right? Yeah, someday, someday we will. One of the things I'm, I'm always curious about is, you know, what was the, the show or the moment that flipped the switch for people? For me, I was, I think, 11 years old. We were on vacation with the family. We were down on Cape Cod and my mom and dad took me and my brothers to see Man of La Mancha. Mm. And Richard Kiley was playing uh, Don Quixote. Mm. It was one I, I'll never forget to this day sitting in the audience during the impossible dream, just choking up, just watching that scene. It still gets me to this day. Hmm. And I was in love after that. So what, what was your moment? There are two really formative things that always come to mind if someone asks me this. I remember a moment in high school when I, I was sort of daring. I was always in music and art when I was when I was in elementary, junior high, high school. And it wasn't until my sophomore year that I sort of, my, my friends sort of egged me on to audition for the musical, which was Once Upon a Mattress. And I got in and I played Sir Harry and I sort of was hooked on, you know, then being on stage, but I was still kind of terrified of it, honestly. Uh, my senior year, I was playing Seymour in Little Shop. And there was a moment in that, you know, it's not in the movie, but there's a moment in the, in the stage musical, I think it's called The Soliloquy, where he's sort of debating whether or not he should keep feeding Audrey too. And, and there's that, the vegetable must be destroyed and everything's rumbling <laughs> and everything stops. But then there's Audrey, lovely Audrey, if life were tawdry and impoverished as before. 
she might not like me, you know, that whole moment. Right. It's so, and I remember, oh, I always loved the part, but when we got to performing it, I think what happened to me in the moment as a little 17 year old, you know, <laughs> unformed thing was that I became so aware in that moment on stage I don't know, there were maybe 150 people in the house. I have no idea. But I became so aware of this sort of communal feeling that theater is, that you get. Like there's, I was so, I fell in love with it completely because it was like, wow, this is, this art form is so experiential for everyone in the room, not just the mm -hmm. actors, but the audience are a part of the, the, every member of the audience is a part of it. And it is formed in the moment by all of those people in that room. And I think I, I don't know that I had those thoughts, but I was just like completely hooked at that point. Yeah. And then I went to see a touring production of a couple years later of Les Mis at the Fisher Theater in Detroit. Two things happened in that show. Really the moment when Javert was on that bridge and he's like singing about, I can't go on, you know, by all this thing, like Jean Valjean has ruined me. And then I'm, the bridge is sitting on the stage. Yeah. I know I've read, yeah. I, at this point I've read Les Mis. I know he's going to jump in the river, but there's literally the stage floor right there, right? Yeah. What's going to happen? And when he went, there is no way to go on. And then that bridge flew up behind him. I thought I I, I mean, I had the craziest sort of like, theater's amazing. I mean, I just, I mean, all of it, the way the music, you know, it sounds like he's just screaming and then the music swells and changes and changes keys. And it just meets that note that he's screaming, da -da -dun -dun -dun, you know, and I was just like, this is brilliant theater right here. This is amazing. Yeah. So that, if it wasn't already sealed, with that moment in, in high school, I mean, yeah. I just amazing. was captivated by what theater can do and how you can move someone so fully when you know, that's the thing about it is, you know, it's not real. You're so aware when you're watching a theater piece that it isn't real. There's all the conventions are there and yet you can still, you know, that suspension of disbelief is so strong and so powerful. Uh, it's so funny. I, I did the thumbs up because I played Seymour. You did many yeah. moons ago, but well, I, I'm not too. just because what you said, <laughs> not just because of what you said, but that moment in that show for me, that was a very cathartic moment because as soon as you go, but then there's Audrey, lovely that the the audience is deadly silent. I know, and I've said it before. My favorite moments on stage are when we have a hundred people on stage and we sing the Les Mis or we sing. We did the Hamilton medley. And as soon as you hit the final note and it resonates, and then there's five seconds of silence because the audience is so stunned, they don't even know to clap yet. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the moment that always brings me back. It's like getting a par on the 18th hole after I've shot 143, <laughs> but oh, all right, I got a par. I'm going to come back now. But it's it's literally that moment and the yeah. silence. And then I don't know what it is, It's it, but it, I, I understand that feeling. It's just appreciation. Yeah, my director worked on that moment with me over and over in that switch in that song, Sean. It was, and it's funny that you said that. Well, and and you do know, I mean, you know that also as an audience member, you know that they're going, right, right. What about Audrey? What, you know, I feel like, oh my God, it's crazy that he's feeding this plant that's murdering people. But 
I might do the same thing in his, in his <laughs> position. You know, if I, if I was in his position, it is a, an oddly, you know, out of this world, like dilemma he's, he's oh. having. And yeah. it's just all, I mean, also it's just a beautiful musical moment. It's, it's that thing. It's very theatrical. And I mean, I'm such a, such a huge Ashman Mencken yeah. fan, you know, it's such a fun show. Oh my God. Love it. We hope you enjoyed episode one with actor Sean Allen Krill. Come back next week where Sean talks about the reopening of Broadway and a little bit of inside knowledge of Jagged Little Pill, along with some other fun conversations. As Sean mentioned, his partner, Guy Adkins, wrote a book, Notes from a Candyman. You can still purchase that book at Apple Books. Pick up a copy and enjoy it. It's a beautiful read. Thank you. Thank you.